are often exhorted to read the entire counsel of God. And yet, I suspect that, like me, there will be parts of your Bible, certainly if you're still using an actual hard copy, a book, rather than an electronic device, which will be in better condition than others having relatively little evidence of a thumbprint on them. And one such book that I suspect is likely to be underread by most of us is the short book of Nahum. I do admit that before I came to study Nahum for this series, the only thing genuinely that I could remember about the book of Nahum was, I think it was Ken McFarland in this church many years ago, I'm sorry, in, in our predecessor church, Ken McFarland saying about Nahum being the, the book of the Bible without a B in it. Nahum. Nahum. Apparently that joke works better in, if you're Scottish, uh, although maybe not. Anyway, that was, uh, thank you, Ken, for that, um, that uh, memory. Um, now, again, for those of us who are still persevering with traditional methods, that is, with an actual book rather than the Bible on your phone, you may well encounter the problem tonight of where to find Nahum in your Bible. So, a bit of assistance if you go to the minor prophets part of your Bible, and if you don't know where the minor prophets bit of your Bible is, it comes after the major prophets. And if you don't know where the major prophets part of your Bible is, then please see the leadership afterwards. <laughs> Nahum is the seventh in order of the minor prophets. It's actually sandwiched between Micah and Habakkuk. So there you, if you'll find it between Micah and Habakkuk. And I should, of course, say that when we speak of a minor prophet, we're not saying that that prophet was less important than a major prophet. It simply is a reference to the fact that the, the book, their prophecy, is shorter than that of um, a major prophet. Nahum is actually uh, in total only 47 verses, but Nahum most definitely brought a very important message. And we're going to study that message then over three talks beginning then this evening. You may know, or maybe you have just discovered, that Nahum consists of three chapters. But my talks are not going to coincide with the chapter divisions apart from the final talk, talk three, which will be just chapter three. So this, uh, this evening then, we are going to look at chapter one, verse one, through to verse six, because I am going to use this a bit like Sunday morning with uh, James, we have a wee bit of introductory work to do um, so that we can be better placed to um, understand 
the, the message. Um, some of us, some of the guys in the church have been um, reading a book by Gordon Fee and someone else, I can't remember the second name, um, which really stresses how important it is to know the background, to know the context of a biblical book if you're going to be confident that what you take out of it is actually what the original author was saying and you're not reading something into it that was never meant. So I just want to, um, at this point, all I want to do is to read the first verse and then we'll read the other verses a wee bit later. So it's just verse one. An oracle concerning Nineveh. The book of the vision of Nahum, the Elkishite, and I'm sorry, but there's no other way of pronouncing that that I, that I know of. I do want to say a little bit about Nahum's personal background. And in actual fact, there isn't a huge amount to say. Um, Nahum uh, features nowhere else in the Bible apart from his own book. And all we know about him is that, well, first of all, his name means comfort or comforter. His birthplace, which was Elkosh, but even there, nobody today knows where Elkosh actually was located. We know his vocation. He was a prophet, a prophet of the Lord. Uh, he's not explicitly called a prophet, but the fact that he received a vision from God that was then passed on as a divine oracle proves that he was a prophet. And we know that he ministered in the 7th century BC, almost definitely in the southern kingdom of Judah, since by this time, the northern kingdom of Israel had collapsed due to the, uh, the Assyrian invasion and the deportation of the tribes of the north to various parts of the Assyrian uh, empire. So he almost certainly was ministering in Judah in the southern kingdom. And that takes me then to uh, a little bit about <clears throat> the historical background. Nahum was ministering during the era of the Assyrian Empire, okay? Very, very, very powerful empire. And you'll see that from verse 1. Uh, you'll see from verse 1 that Nahum's oracle is said to concern Nineveh. Nineveh which is located about 220 miles northwest of modern-day Baghdad. It's actually very close to Mosul, and you probably have heard of Mosul in recent years because ISIS was very, very active in that um, city. Well, Nineveh was or had become the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. And as we'll see in a subsequent uh, talk, um, Nineveh was a very, very mightily impressive and very strongly fortified city. 
The Assyrian emperor of the day was Ashurbanipal. And I have probably uh, mangled that pronunciation, Ashurbanipal. And under his rule, the Assyrian empire had uh, become very, very, very extensive. It covered the entire Middle East and spread right into Africa. The Assyrians operated a policy whereby any hint of rebellion by a puppet state would lead to the Assyrian army coming in and they would crush the rebellion with death, captivity, and then the deportation of those peoples to other parts of the Assyrian Empire. And then what the Assyrians would do, they would repopulate it with people from other parts. And that, of course, had been the fate of the northern kingdom of Israel. When Israel rebelled against Assyrian rule, the Assyrians came in and then they deported the various northern tribes and they repopulated it um, with people from other parts of the empire who then became known as the Samaritans. The specter of invasion now hovers over the southern kingdom. Any hint that Judah would rebel by refusing to pay tribute or by forming alliances with other states and the Assyrian forces were likely to march on Jerusalem. As indeed it happened not that terribly long before when Hezekiah was on Judah's throne. Um, It was only a miraculous intervention by the Lord that had saved Judah on that occasion from certain destruction. And at the time of Nahum's ministry, it's likely that Judah was now led by Hezekiah's son, Manasseh, um, who was a notoriously wicked king, and he was forced to pay enormous tribute to the Assyrians to keep them at bay. I could go into uh, a bit of detail on the, um, the likely date that Nahum is writing. Um, it is probable, the commentators would tell us, that Nahum was probably writing when the Assyrian Empire was at the peak of its power. Um, certainly verse 12 of chapter 1 suggests that the Assyrian Empire was still very, very powerful at this time. The Assyrian Empire was going to go into decline and um, some commentators think that Nahum was writing during that period where the power of the Assyrians was waning, but I think it is more likely that it was um, earlier on and certainly before the death of Ashurbanipal. So enough um, history. Um, What about the style of the book? John Mackey observes, it is written in vigorous and dramatic language 
which equals anything in the rest of the Old Testament. And probably the best description of it is it it is like war poetry. And we will really see that in, um, well, next, the next two talks. There's a lot of poetry used, um, but it's very much with a, the theme of war. And Nahum is certainly fond of using metaphor. Two of the most um, significant metaphors that Nahum uses are the lion, which was very much the symbol of the Assyrians, but also of a whore. And we might also note that Nahum's prophecy is the only one in the Bible that is actually referred to as a book. You will see that in the the verse I read, the book of the vision. And some have speculated that this prophecy was then um, written down and circulated as a sort of underground pamphlet. Note also that it is described as an oracle. And in the Bible, an oracle is a very weighty word. It carries the idea of divine judgment. And it's also, also note that it's referred to as a vision. A vision is not the same as a dream, okay? When a prophet receives a vision, it's not the same as a dream because with a, a vision, the prophet is actually awake and conscious but is given to see a picture of what is going to happen in the future. It's a wee bit like the sort of concept of uh, virtual reality. Um, If you're over a certain age, you probably not understand what that is, so just forget that I mentioned that. Um, The theme of Nahum's prophecy is that destruction is now coming upon Nineveh, Nineveh representing the Assyrians. Previously, God had used the Assyrians as the instrument of his wrath with which to punish Israel. But the Assyrians had overstepped the mark. As we will see, particularly in talk three, the Assyrians were amongst the most cruel empire the most cruel people that the world has ever witnessed. And in their punishment of other nations, other peoples, including Israel, they had really, really overstepped the mark. And now the time has come for God to deal with the Assyrians. Of course, 100 years previously, or prior to Nahum, issuing this prophecy, given at that time the Ninevites' repentance, God had exercised mercy towards them, much to the displeasure of which prophet? Jonah. Jonah objected to God's leniency towards such an evil people. Now, however, Given, Israel, given Assyria's return to their sinful ways, the time was ripe for judgment to fall. Some have said, rather uh, tongue-in-cheek, tongue in that um, 
Nahum wrote the book that Jonah would have loved to have written. Of course, this prophecy of Nineveh's imminent demise would then serve as good news for God's people, for Judah, because they then would be delivered from under the threat of a Syrian invasion. And it was then essentially the Judeans to whom Nahum addresses his prophecy. He's speaking more to the the people of Judah rather than to um, the Assyrians themselves. But before we look at uh, verses 2 to 6, I want to say a little about the critiques of the book of Nahum. Basically, critics have made three major points. First of all, there is those there are those rather who really dislike this book of the Bible because of its overriding emphasis on the wrath or the wrath of God. And because there is no explicit call for repentance on the part of the Assyrians in order that they might avert judgment. Some indeed would wish that Nahum was removed altogether from the canon of Scripture, from the Bible. Um, One Old Testament scholar, Elizabeth Actemir, commented, All Scripture is inspired by God, with the possible exception of Nahum. Secondly, some see it as a very nationalistic, even a chauvinistic message. For there is not a single mention in the book of the sins of Judah, but only the sins of Judah's enemies. And third, there are liberal scholars who say, and we will see this again in particularly week three, well, two and three actually, given the amount of detail that Nahum presents regarding the fall of Nineveh, some liberal critics say this could not have been written in advance of that event. There's just too much detail. It must have been written after the event later on in history. Now, without getting into a detailed response, suffice it to say that first, as we will see in a moment, wrath is a key and necessary component of God's character. Secondly, we have to balance up the fact of the absence of mention of the sins of God's people in Nahum with the fact that other parts of the Bible and other minor prophets and major prophets say so much about the sins of God's people. So God certainly can't be accused of whitewashing his people's sin. And thirdly, the post-dating of Nahum to after the fall of Nineveh, well, that simply reflects the liberal critics' unwillingness to accept the supernatural. They simply will not accept 
that someone could receive a vision, such a detailed vision of what was going to happen in the future. So they simply conclude, ach no, it was written by somebody after the event. We're used to that with liberal biblical critics. So let's resume our reading. Verse two, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. His way is in the whirlwind and the storm and clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and dries it up. He makes all the rivers run dry. Bashan and Carmel wither and the blossoms of Lebanon fade. The mountains quake before him and the hills melt away. The earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. Who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. The rocks are shattered before him. I want to just uh, tease out four four, um, aspects of God's character that come out of what has just been read. And the first one is this description of God as being jealous, verse 1. We, of course, have to be very careful here because you and I are used today to jealousy being considered as a vice rather than a virtue. We use the term interchangeably with envy, you know, where you resent someone else having what you don't have. Now, clearly that cannot be the sense here. You see, strictly speaking, jealousy means being protective of what is rightfully yours. Just like a husband is jealous of his wife's romantic affections. A husband doesn't want his wife sharing romantic affections with other men. The second commandment includes the word, the words, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, Exodus 20, verse 5. And God is really jealous of two things. First of all, God is jealous of his own name. That is his glory, his character, his reputation. And secondly, God is jealous of his people. God desires that those who have come to know him will remain loyal to him and do not commit spiritual adultery by worshipping idols, false gods. Again, the second commandment contains the words, you shall not bow down to them or worship them, speaking of false gods. And Exodus 34 verse 14 declares, do not worship any other god, For the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. 
And it's indeed significant that Nahum employs the name Yahweh here three times in verse 2 and 10 times in chapter 1 as a whole. You see, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. And God had entered into a covenant or marriage with Nahum's nation. And God was jealous for that nation. He wanted them to be loyal to him and not to chase after false gods. The second aspect of God's character then is alluded to in these verses. And this one would be very, very, very hard to miss is God's wrath. I like to pronounce it wrath. Some people like to pronounce it wrath, as in Michael Wrath. Um, I'm easy, whatever you want. But wrath or wrath is God's righteous anger against sin. His righteous anger against sin. Verse one, the Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord takes vengeance and is filled with wrath. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and maintains his wrath against his enemies. Verse 6, who can withstand his indignation? Who can endure his fierce anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. And one of the commentators that I listened to, an American, a young American guy called Garrett Keel, he points out that every single word that exists in the Hebrew language for anger is used by Nahum in his book. He says, God's wrath in Nahum is revealed in HD, in high definition. But again, we need to be careful here. God's wrath mustn't be equated with human wrath, with human anger. Our wrath is often laced with spite, with pettiness, with moodiness, with fits of temper. But God's wrath is his settled indignation against sin, oppression, evil, and injustice. There is nothing petty Nothing vindictive, nothing capricious about divine wrath. But make no mistake about it, it is very real. In verse 2, we read that God maintains his wrath. That can be translated as he is the master or Lord of wrath, which carries the idea of intense feeling. And the fact that it is said to be maintained means that it is always hanging over the heads of his enemies. The third characteristic of God brought out in these verses is his power. No one, no one or nothing can resist his power. Not even the natural world, which after all he created. He rebukes the sea. He makes all the rivers run dry. The mountains quake before him. The hills melt away. The rocks are shattered before him. Our God is omnipotent. His capacity, that the earth trembles at his presence, the world and all who live in it. 
and his capacity to act dramatically in the realm of nature is brought out by references to the whirlwind and the storm and to the clouds being likened to the dust of his feet. Even areas which were renowned for their luxuriant pastures and vegetation, Bashan, Carmel, and Lebanon, could wither at the stroke of his, or the click of his fingers. Um, I'm going to digress just for a second, because whenever I read in, in the Bible, and it appears different places, um, the reference to Carmel, it does always make me smile. Because there is a town, Carmel, on the west coast of America. Uh, and a certain individual by the name of Mr. Clint Eastwood lives in Carmel and indeed was for a time the mayor of Carmel. And I, with some folks here, I had an overnight stay in Carmel back in 2007. And despite it being August, it was actually very, very misty and very cold. In fact, the girls had to go out, I think, and get fleeces. It was so uh, cold. And a resident of Carmel told me that if you want to see sunshine in Carmel, you have to come in, surprisingly, the month of October. Carmel has a genuine microclimate and it sees very little sunshine outside of that one month of October. However, I do have to say that Carmel had the most absolutely amazing tie shop. And at that stage, I was a connoisseur of fancy ties. And I just thought I had been caught up to the third heaven with these ties. It was absolutely amazing. And in fact, I think it must have been because I was so carried away with that that it was only actually when we drove away the next day that I realized, you know what? One of the things I said I'd been really looking forward to about visiting Carmel was seeing Clint Eastwood's house. I've completely forgotten about it. <laughs> anyway, that is all totally irrelevant to uh, Nahum. Uh, just to be absolutely clear, there is no link between the Carmel I've been speaking to in America and this Carmel in the Bible. The fourth aspect of God's character is his forbearance. You see how verse 3 opens, The Lord is slow to anger. For all of his wrath, God is long-suffering and patient towards sinners. But that's all I'm going to say on that point. It'll be taken up again uh, next time. But before I finish for tonight, I want to test your forbearance by drawing out two lessons. Number one, our God will not tolerate disloyalty. Our God will not tolerate disloyalty. We have seen that God is a jealous God. He is jealous for his own name, his own reputation, but he's also jealous for his people's worship and service. God had entered into a marriage contract with Israel, and that meant 
that those who abused Israel, like the Assyrians, would be subject to his wrath. But it also meant that God would not turn a blind eye to Israel's disloyalty, to their spiritual adultery as they chased after other gods, entering into alliances with foreign powers, intermarrying with their peoples and erecting shrines to their deities. Indeed, that was why Israel had been on the receiving end of Assyria's oppressive ways. God had been disciplining Israel. And likewise, we, as God's New Testament people, we must understand that God is jealous for our worship and our affections, our loyalty. God has an exclusive claim upon our worship. And should we turn from him and serve idols, we must expect God's hand of chastisement. That is the clear teaching of the New Testament book of Hebrews. The writer reminds us there that God's discipline is a necessary mark of his fatherly love. I mean, he basically does say that if you, if you wander and stray and you do not know the disciplining hand of God, you are a bastard child. You're illegitimate. God is not your real father. And he also says that discipline is never pleasant at the time. What form that chastisement takes can vary, but we can be sure that it will not be a comfortable experience. And the second and final point for tonight is we should never, ever minimize the wrath of God. Never minimize the wrath of God. Back in 1972, a lot of you will have heard of J.I. Packer, a big Christian theologian. Well, back in 1970, he died not that long ago, but back in 1972, J.I. Packer wrote this. The church mumbles on about God's kindness, but says virtually nothing about his judgment. The fact is, that the subject of divine wrath has become taboo in modern society. And Christians have by and large accepted the taboo and conditioned themselves never to raise the matter. Now, if that were true back in the, 90, in the early 70s, it's applicable with steroids today. It is not too strong a statement to say that modern-day liberal Christianity hates the concept of divine wrath, the idea of God being a God of punishment. Uh, this has become quite a familiar uh, theme for me. Um, but the so-called modern phenomenon of progressive Christianity, postmodern phenomenon of progressive Christianity, tries everything to remove God's wrath from our Christian creed. Divine wrath is said to make God into a moral monster. A loving God, we're told, would not stoop to the level of punishing people.
people, whether now or eternally. Yet we must insist that divine wrath is a necessary dimension of a holy God. It is an essential aspect of his moral perfection. God must punish sin that has not been repented of. God must punish evil and injustice. Otherwise, a moral universe simply collapses. And otherwise, it makes a complete travesty of the cross. John Mackey comments, to minimize the reality of God's righteous wrath against sin is to debase his holiness, to demean the significance of the cross, and to leave in frightful peril those who do not recognize the enormity of their conduct in the sight of God. If you remove wrath, you are telling sinners there's nothing to be worried about come the judgment. There is no judgment. So let us never succumb to the temptation to erase wrath and punishment from our understanding of God and God's government. I know it is a somber note to close on, but I think it's a very necessary uh, note. Next time, what we're going to do is we're going to finish off chapter 1 and go right through to the end of chapter 2. And then the final talk will deal just with chapter 3. So why not read it yourselves in your own time? It genuinely will not take you very long. It's 47 verses long. Thank you for listening to this Castlereagh Fellowship podcast. For more podcasts, Bible teaching videos, and to see what's going on at the church, please visit our website, castlereaghfellowship.com. God bless.